I have within my hand uh, my last will and testament. This is bona fide. This is this is it, and uh, I have within this. Uh, Karen and I have decided to split our inheritance between our two children, seventy and thirty. <laughs> we have not filled in the blanks yet. I'm seeing where my daughter chooses my nursing home, what, what, what assisted living she chooses, and then I'll make my decision. Got to hold something over right to the end, or you're going to get stuck where you don't want to get stuck. Wills are funny things, last wishes. Uh, in the history of uh, man, there's been some strange last wishes, last desires, or last wills on the way out. It's kind of fun to see some famous folks and, and what they desired on the way out. That's Harry Houdini and his wife, Bess, and uh, he died in 1926 on, of all days, Halloween. That's kind of interesting, yeah. And so uh, Harry Houdini promised Bess's wife that he would uh, come back once a year on their anniversary, so he made her promise to do a seance, and he gave her a 10-digit code secretly so that she could, uh, you know, send away the gainsayers, and, uh, but... I don't think Harry ever showed up in any of those. This is Gene Roddenberry, you Star Trekkers. You don't need to me to tell you who that is. Uh, he died in 1997, uh, and his last wishes uh, was that his ashes be scattered into space, which was done by a satellite, and I guess that's to fulfill, I can't resist, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Uh, the next person I'm going to uh, tell the last wishes, I don't have a picture for because they're not famous, but they're fascinating. It was a lawyer in uh, Toronto. His name was Charles Van Miller. And upon his death in 1926, his last wishes and will, uh, he uh, gave a large sum of money to the city of Toronto and uh, proposed a contest between all the mothers of that particular city that in 10 years, the woman who gave birth to the most children would receive that money, which was half a million dollars. Back in 1926, that was a big deal, and still a big deal. But um, four women tied after 10 years. Four women tied, each having nine children. It's a lot of work to split a fourth of half a million. Uh, it was known in Toronto as the, uh, the, the Stork Contest, the, the Great Stork Derby is what it was named. Uh, the next one you'll know, in the 1980s, she was known as the Queen of Mean. That's Leona Helmsley, I believe a hotel owner. And she, in her last will, left $12 million to her dog that sits in her lap. $12 million. A judge cut that down to $2 million, But just to let you know, she has two grandsons. And after she... Willed twelve million to her dog. She willed five million to each of the two grandsons, uh, with a condition that they visited their father's grave once a year for the rest of their lives. So, kind of interesting last wishes. What we have before us in John chapter seventeen is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. We have his last will. Maybe you didn't know that he had a last will and testament. In John chapter 17, 
Go with me, if you will, down to verse 24, and let's read his will. Before we read that will, let me just stop and say what a blessing it has been for me to study the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. It is the most incredible prayer ever prayed. I believe it to be an ongoing prayer in heaven by our high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. This is what he prays for us. It is themed with several major themes. One is oneness, unity. The oneness between the Father and the Son, our oneness that we share. Another theme that you see shot throughout verse chapter 17 is glory. The glory that they share together. The glory that one gives to the other and the glory that he has glorified us in in that entering into that relationship. And lastly, love is a major theme. It's a beautiful prayer. Sevens are shot all through the prayer. There are seven petitions the Father makes, the Son makes to the Father. There are seven positions that the, he prays for his followers in relation to the world. So the number seven is seen all through the prayer. John Knox, on his deathbed, for the last week that he lived, had this prayer read to him every day. It is a blessing, it is a joy, it is holy ground. It is, as the psalm says, such, one, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. And no matter how many times you study it, and we preach it, and you try to understand it, we try to understand it, we cannot attain unto the magnificence of this prayer. So let's read his last will. Verse 24. Father, I desire. The ESV has I desire. Good rendering. King James says, Father, I will. It's the first time that word is used in this prayer. It's the first time it's used. This is his will and testament. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. There you go. Maybe you were hoping to inherit something different, but there's no greater thing to inherit. When men die, we might leave a trinket behind us, something material. But when we die, We cannot leave ourselves to them. We are gone. When he dies, he will rise again. And his presence is what he gives us back to us. Praise God. There are not the golden streets of heaven. There are not the mansions we look forward to. His his inheritance to us. Now in them is his presence with us. There is nothing greater How many vacations have we taken with the family until we realized it wasn't about the destination? It was about the fun you had in the car on the way to the destination. It wasn't about the stuff, the plans that fell apart. It was the people you shared them with. The presence. Every day I look forward to 6.30 because that's when Karen gets home. The last hour is just difficult for me. Keep looking at the clock. I can't wait for her to walk in that door. 
Oscar and I both run to the door, tails wagging. I jump on her, she, Oscar jumps on her, we just jump it all over her. Because it's the presence of other people that makes life worth it, does it not? Loneliness is a terror. Spiritually, He is with you now. Nothing in this prayer has any strings attached to it. Nothing in this prayer says, if you do this, He'll do that. Nothing. Everything He's proposing and praying to the Father, the Father answers. He says, I desire that they are with me Wherever I am. Do you think that's... Are you waiting for heaven? It's now. Wherever He is. We are there. We need our eyes open to that, certainly. But opening my eyes, that the Spirit open our eyes, doesn't make Him close. He is close now. He is where we are. His presence is the life in which we live right now. He is the air we breathe. He is the environment that we live in. He is everything. I will. I desire. Can you imagine the God of heaven? Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ has this burning desire to be with you and for you to be with Him. Wow. You ever been somewhere where you weren't welcome? You ever been in the presence of someone where there was awkwardness? Couldn't wait to get away from them. Jesus can't wait to get with you and He's with you now in all the situations of life. Notice the the will goes on. That's the central part of it. Verse 24, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. For what purpose? Stop. Not for the purpose for you to receive anything, but for the purpose for you seeing something. And in seeing that, life is transformed. He doesn't want us to be with him and I, him with us to receive anything of this world. Not so that you might be filled with peace and joy and all those things, which are all a downflow of what he's going to say. Right? Jesus always prayed and taught to the core of things because if you get the core of things right, everything flows out of that properly. Notice, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Love is the crowning glory that the Father has given to the Son long before there was ever anything here. He wants us to see that glory. He wants us to see that love. He wants, to, he wants us to see the magnificence of Jesus Christ. He wants us to see the magnificence of Him. The amazing thing happens when you see that. You're not thinking of yourself anymore. You're not thinking of your circumstance. You're not thinking of the burdens of life. You become very childlike. And I don't mean selfish childlike. I mean happy-go-lucky childlike. We live in the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. He says, I desire that they are with me, that they may see my glory. 
the psalmist said this in Psalm 16. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, God's a big killjoy, isn't he? We'll take away all your toys, take away all your fun. God's going to afflict you and make you miserable because that's, that's what he does. That's what he loves. God wants your life to fall apart. What a picture. What a counter picture that Jesus gives us in his prayer. I will that they whom you have given me may be with me to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. And that love was eternal love. It goes on in verse 25, O righteous Father. Notice before in the prayer he says, Holy Father, set apart Father, because he's praying about the sanctification and setting apart of the world, but now he's going of the Christian, but now he's going to address the world's perspective of him, and he says, O righteous Father. A whole different perspective there. It's a perspective of the justice of God, of the righteousness of God, in contrast to the unrighteousness of the world that has become such as it is. Notice in verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you. It doesn't say the world can't know you. It says it does not know you. The world does not know the Father because it does not want to know the Father. Jesus said, you will not come, not that you cannot come to me, you will not come to me that you may receive eternal life. Notice in the perspective of the world, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. This is an intimacy of knowledge that is expanse without any measure. The world doesn't know you, Father. How many false stories does the world tell about the God of heaven? How many lies does it tell? How many false gods and idols does it set up? And even if they're talking about the God of the Bible, he has slandered on the lips of all the world. And yet God doesn't fight that back. Notice he said, he doesn't say, oh, righteous Father, the world hates you. Well, the world is unrighteous. It doesn't talk about the things the world does to each other or to him. He boils it all the way down to the very core problem. They don't know you. They don't know you because they don't want to know you. But if they did know you, everything would change. The world will never know who God is until they come to Jesus Christ. Because he said, I know you. He alone knows God. No other religions, Muhammad, Buddha, all the false prophets through all the centuries, none of them knew the Father. Jesus alone knows the Father. I know them. And then he goes on and talks about us. Notice. And these know, notice that you have sent me. 
Notice he doesn't say, the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you. Doesn't say that. It says, these know that you have sent me. Our knowledge is imperfect, is it not? When someday, when we stand before him and gather around his throne and walk with him in heaven, we will know him. But now we see in part. We see in like a dark shade looking through. We catch glimpses of his glory, but not the full thing. Notice verse 26. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. prayer of the high priest of heaven that he prays for you is that you progressively know more and more the love of the Father and the love of Jesus Christ. And know it not with this, but with this. Know it not by intellect, but know it by the heart. You know what it is to have intimacy with another human being, whether that's a friend or a mate, you know them. You know what they're thinking. You know what they're going to say. Given any circumstance, you probably know how they're going to react. That's the knowledge that he wants us to have of the Father. That's the continual revelation of the Holy Spirit within your heart as you open your heart to him. Rest and trust in him. The Father continually, Jesus continually shows us the Father. What's the purpose of this? This is his last statement in his last will and testament in verse 26. That the love with which you have loved me, the eternal, immeasurable, unending love, the love that the Father has loved with the Son, notice, may be inside of them. In them. Christianity becomes commercial when it's exterior. Religion becomes a duty when it's performed by the exterior. True Christianity is the Holy Spirit showing us Jesus Christ and the love of the Father and then embracing that love by faith more and more until that perfect day that he returns for us. That is the prayer of Jesus Christ. Not only the love may be in them, but I in them. I in them. Chapter 13, verse 1, I want you to flip over to it. It was the beginning of this upper room discourse. It was the beginning of this talk that ends in chapter 17 in the last verse. Chapter 13 begins the upper room discourse. And it begins like this. John wrote, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, notice, having loved his own, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them with a degree of love that is immeasurable and without end. 
This discourse begins with a statement of the love of Jesus Christ that he has for we who are in this world that are his. And it ends in a love that he wants to plant inside of them and he in them to last all of eternity. No wonder John Knox had this read on his deathbed. I think I'd like to hear this prayer over and over and over again. Three great themes. Oneness. Jesus is one with the Father. When you believe on Christ, you have entered into the inner circle of that love. You are one with God. And I don't care how many times you sin, how many times you fail, how many times you blow it. Nothing pulls you out of that inner circle. The fact that in the midst of sin and failure, our minds immediately go to the oneness we have of our Father, the faster you repent, the quicker you're back with Him. We don't cower in the garden. When, when God showed up in the garden for his afternoon walk with Adam, he was kind of wandering through looking for Adam. Adam and Eve were gone. He couldn't find them. Well, he could find them, but he couldn't find them. He knew what happened. He always knows. He, he didn't call out to Adam and Eve, what have you done? What have you done? You know? I might be behind the tree. Don't bite the apple. But they did. They sinned. They hid. They heard him coming. And when they heard him coming, what did they do? They went and hid. The question he asked was this. Where are you? God wasn't looking for a physical location. He knew right where they were. He wanted them to see where they were in relation to him. He wanted them to see that this afternoon walk and this presence that they had enjoyed, he was coming to get them. Oneness. We are one with Jesus Christ. No tragedy of life, no heartache of life, no sin can separate that, no mistake in the past, whatever you want to call it, can, can separate you from the oneness, full oneness, He doesn't give this in degrees. It's fully one with Jesus Christ. This is based on the work of Christ and the prayer of Christ. That's how solid it is. The second great theme is glory. The glory that Jesus shared with the Father long before any of this was here. Or we had strength to do anything. What is this glory? This glory is the love that was shared within this Trinitarian God, this immense love, this love that the Father gave to the Son, glorifying the glory. You know what glorifies people in a physical realm? When they are loved. Show me a woman that's loved by a man, I'll show you a, a glorious woman who's happy. Show me a man who has the faithful love of a wife, I'll show you a happy man. Show me a friend who has a love of a a fellow friend, I'll show you somebody that's glory and happy. Because that's what glorifies life and brings glory to life. 
is a sense of love. God has glorified us in Jesus Christ because he has bestowed upon us love. Corinthians says this, and I'll close with this. Faith, hope, and love. I have faith that I'm one with the Father. I have an amazing hope, an expectation that will not be denied me that God has glorified me in Jesus Christ. But the greatest of these is love. The love of Jesus Christ for your soul.